I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Tamara Kendacker. So when it comes to solutions in the fight against climate change, one of the most polarizing is nuclear power. And this debate is back in the news because right now, in two different corners of the world, the future of nuclear power plants and their remains are causing alarm. In Ukraine, Europe's largest nuclear plant has become a battleground in the war. Ukraine's president is accusing Russia of planting explosives at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Moscow, in turn, has said Kyiv is planning to attack the facility. Further east, Japan is one step closer to going through with a controversial plan to release 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean, the fallout from the Fukushima Daiichi disaster just over a decade ago. China has been the most vocal, calling Japan's plan irresponsible, unpopular, and unilateral. In neighboring South Korea, shoppers have been bulk buying sea salt due to fears of contamination. Despite the outrage, the government has pointed out there is simply no more room at the site in the huge tanks that hold wastewater. Meanwhile, in calmer waters, Canada is pushing ahead betting on nuclear power to help reduce emissions. Last week, Ontario Energy Minister Todd Smith announced plans to build three small modular nuclear reactors at the Darlington power plant. Once these SMRs are deployed, it'll produce another 1,200 megawatts of electricity. That's enough to power about 1.2 million homes. That means more clean, reliable, and affordable power for the next major international investment that comes here. The province also wants to expand Bruce Power with a brand new plant on the shores of Lake Huron, making one of the world's largest nuclear facilities even larger. So today, we're going to talk about nuclear power in an unstable world. Is it a net positive or a terrifying liability? Jim Smith is on the show today. He's a professor of environmental science at Portsmouth University and the lead author of the book, Chernobyl, Catastrophe and Consequences. Uh, Hi, Jim. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Tamara. So, Jim, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. But first, I was wondering if you could take us back to 2011, the tsunami that happened in Japan, which was triggered by an earthquake. What happened at the Fukushima power plant? When the earthquake happened, the nuclear site at Fukushima, the reactor shut down automatically. But 40 minutes later, the giant tsunami arrived and that overwhelmed the sea defenses at Fukushima and flooded the reactor buildings. And that caused the diesel generators to to be flooded and stop working, and it shut down the cooling system. So basically, the reactors no longer had cooling. They'd shut down, but they were still very hot, and they overheated, and that led to a 
meltdown and release of radioactivity. And so the really dramatic thing that we saw at Fukushima was three of the reactor buildings exploding from an explosion of hydrogen gas. It's becoming difficult for crews to try to prevent a meltdown at the site. Since the weekend, there have been explosions in reactors one, two, and three. And temperatures are also rising at two other reactors nearby. And so the, the meltdown and explosion released radioactivity into the atmosphere, into the, which then deposited on the land and, and the sea, as well as direct uh, discharges of radioactivity into the Pacific Ocean. So this water that Japan wants to get rid of now, where is that coming from? So initially, water was radioactive water from the plants. So they were trying to cool the reactors. And so water was going into the ocean. But the Japanese started pumping that out and storing it. And this this is still going on because there's, the, the reactors still need water for the cooling operations. And there's also radioactive water in the water around the plant underneath the plant and so that has to be pumped out mm -hmm. so since about 2012 the japanese have been collecting that water and storing it in over a thousand giant tanks so they've now got about 1.3 million cubic meters of radioactive not i wouldn't say not highly radioactive but significantly radioactive water stored in tanks Treated radioactive water at the plant is stored in about a thousand tanks that are nearing their 1.37 million ton capacity. It must be removed to prevent accidental leaks and to make room for the plant's decommissioning. You said that it's not that radioactive and the Japanese government says that it's been treated and it's planned to dump it into the ocean through this tube is safe. Uh, last week, the UN watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Association, signed off on this plan. The plan, as it has been uh, proposed and devised, is in conformity with the agreed international standards. And its application, if the government decides to proceed with it, would have negligible impact on the environment. Meaning so what is it about the water that people are worried about? Um, so the water's been treated. So there's, there's a wide range of radioactive elements. Um, things like if we cast our minds back to the Fukushima accident, people were worried about radioactive cesium, and that's been the main contamination of both the marine and terrestrial environment around Fukushima. That's been removed as of other radionuclides. Um, in their water treatment processing system. What's left is a thing called tritiated water. So tritium is a radioactive form of hydrogen. So it's instead of H2O, it's what we call HTO. Instead of two hydrogens and an oxygen, it's got a hydrogen, an oxygen, and a tritium, the radioactive form of hydrogen. So chemically, it behaves in an identical manner to ordinary water. And that, at that sort of scale, it makes it pretty much impossible to separate it from the you know, 1.3 million cubic meters of ordinary water. I see. And so these concerns about the tritium, I just want to dive into this a little bit. What kind of danger does tritium pose to humans and marine life? So at high levels, the tritium can Pose a, pose a danger both to human and, and marine life. 
by damaging DNA, essentially. So DNA damage is going on all the time in our bodies, not from not only from radiation, but from other things, from uh, all sorts of chemical reactions that are going on in our cells. But, but the cell can usually repair it, but there's occasional moments where the cell can't repair it, and that can lead to cancer. So, so those are the sort of concerns, but we're not talking about those sort of levels of tritium. Right. The, the the Japanese government says the final level of tritium that would be deposited into the water is safer than the level required by regulators for nuclear waste uh, discharge or by the WHO. Can you just sort of put the numbers when it comes to the level of tritium into context for us? So the, the Japanese plan is that after this dilution 100 times, the sum of all the other radionuclides in the release will be less than 1% of the Japanese guideline limit for discharge. The tritium will be about 40 times lower than the Japanese guideline level. And that makes a value. We measure radioactivity in becquerels, and that the tritium will be about 1,500 becquerels per litre in the discharge water. Now, to put that in context, um, the World Health Organization guideline limit for tritium in drinking water is 10,000 becquerels per litre, so seven times higher. So in theory, from the radioactivity perspective, you could drink the water that's going to be released to the Pacific. So there seems to be agreement among a lot of scientists that this plan is safe, but I feel like it's worth noting that there isn't total consensus on this plan in the scientific community, even inside the IAEA. There are also some who say there needs to be more studies on how this would impact the ocean bed and marine wildlife, and that Japan and TEPCO have cut corners, that this has all been a bit hasty. And what do you think of that? Uh, I think that's totally inaccurate. It's not that this is unprecedented. We we know that this has been going on for decades, and and I just think that there's no scientific basis for claims that this is a big risk or that it hasn't been considered properly. I think it has. We know from previous experience what tritium does in the environment. The proviso is that the Japanese do what they say they're going to do, which is, is right. really important. But if they do that, what they say they're going to do, then I don't see any grounds for considering this a significant risk. But there has also been some opposition to this plan from the Japanese public. So surveys show that people are pretty evenly divided and 45% of respondents support the plan, 40% of people are against it. But fishing communities in Fukushima have been especially hard to convince. And on Friday, a petition with 33,000 signatures was delivered by fishing cooperatives expressing their opposition to the plan. If the majority of scientists say the water is safe, why are fishers so opposed to this? I, I mean, they have a very good reason to be opposed to this because they know what perceptional damage it will do to their products. And we know that food is a very sensitive issue for people. And any kind of even the perception of risk is certainly going to damage their ability to sell their catches on the market. Uh, we know that rice in the, from the Fukushima prefecture after the accident, even though it was had been tested and it was radioactively 
below the safe limit, it achieved prices less than other rice from other parts of Japan. And the fishermen know very well that this is going to damage their industry. And, and I have a lot of sympathy with that. It's interesting, though, it's not just people inside Japan who are divided. There's also been some regional opposition to this as well. Uh, China is really against this plan. And in South Korea, the South Korean government, which is trying to improve relations with Japan right now, has said it respects the plan, but the South Korean public really isn't happy about it. There have been some surveys that show 80 to 85 percent of people are against it. It's even caused uh, panic buying in the country. Some shoppers are bulk buying salt as well as seafood to store at home, and retailers are stockpiling in fear of a supply shortage. South Korea's fisheries authorities have vowed to ramp up efforts to monitor natural salt farms for any rise in radioactive substances and maintain a ban on seafood from waters near Fukushima. What do you make of the international reaction to this? Well, I mean, I mean, there's some politics in it, and there's been some propaganda coming from China in particular, uh, which is not supported by any scientific evidence. I think that people don't like radiation. <laughs> and it's something, even though somehow we feel like, because we, we associate radiation with terrible events, like the Fukushima accident, like the Chernobyl accident, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki nuclear bombings, it's, radiation kind of ticks all the boxes of what makes people frightened. So it, it's invisible. It's to do with technological uh, things that m most people don't understand. And it causes dread consequences. It causes cancer. I think, you know, environmental pressure groups and so, so anti-nuclear pressure groups and some scientists have to take a bit of responsibility for this because I don't think everybody is always trying to give people the full information about radiation risk or to put that risk in context. There's, there's quite a lot of hype around radiation. And of course, the media understandably report the hype as well as the, the science. Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. Let's pivot to Ukraine. While this conversation about Fukushima's water is happening in Japan, just down the road from Chernobyl, there has been a lot of worry since the start of the Ukraine war about the Zaporizhia power plant. Uh, it's in Ukraine, but it's occupied by the Russians. And Ukraine's been saying that Russia wants to bomb it and make it look like Ukraine did it. And last week, those warnings escalated. And I should say on Friday, the IAEA experts said that they hadn't seen any signs of visible mines or explosives. But how bad could this be if it actually happened? That's a that's a complicated question. So there are six reactors at the Zaporizhia site. 
at least five of them are in what's called cold shutdown. So we remember this thing when, that happened when Fukushima. The Fukushima, the three reactors that blew up were all in full operation when the earthquake happened. And so they still had lots of this decay heat in the reactor cores, um, which could boil off the water and cause a buildup of heat within the reactor core. If a, if a reactor is in cold shutdown, then that doesn't happen and you only need minimal amounts of water to keep it cooled. If something would, would happen, so if, if some explosives were set off at Zaporizhia, then there could be some local effects, but in its current state, you couldn't get a meltdown like happened, like what happened at, at Chernobyl and Fukushima because the reactors still aren't hot enough. It would take a deliberate act by the Russians to start. The first thing, if they really wanted to blow up the, the, the reactors, then the first thing we would see was that they would all start getting into a high power mode again. So they would start ramping the reactors up and letting them run for a while to build up all these decay elements. And then they would sabotage the cooling system and we would get meltdowns like we saw at Fukushima or possibly even an explosion like we saw at Chernobyl. Um, and so there is, if the Russians really want to, then they could cause a, you know, a major nuclear incident, a level seven, the top level nuclear incident at Zaborizhia. We're not seeing signs of that at the moment, fortunately. Uh, but in the, you know, in the same way as, as Russia could drop a nuclear bomb on Ukraine or on any of us, then they could set off the, the nuclear reactors to melt down. Certainly if a major accident happened at Zaporizhia, it would be the Russians' deliberate act. You couldn't. You would have to get rid of the IAEA inspectors and and force the operators of the site at gunpoint to start um, changing the how the reactors are working and shut off cooling systems and so on. So essentially, what we're seeing right now, even if something doesn't happen, it is a nuclear power plant being weaponized in the context of a war and opponents to nuclear power would say that that's a pretty powerful argument against them. What do you think of that? It is. It is a powerful argument against them. We have to really think about what our options are for power and what the risks are. In a hot war, nuclear power stations can be considered a, a vulnerable target. But at the same time, we have to remember that if Russian soldiers are in your nuclear power station, you've got bigger problems than a nuclear accident. So Ukraine right now has much bigger problems than a nuclear accident. You mentioned earlier that there is a lot of fear around radiation and maybe maybe some of that is overblown. And just as someone who studied the Chernobyl disaster for, for so long, can you kind of explain what we know at this point about the kind of environmental impact we've seen from that disaster? What's interesting is that we know that, that nuclear potentially can damage human societies, not necessarily, even in the case of a serious accident, not necessarily in terms of big risks to people, but in terms of the social and economic impacts that the accident does. But what we've seen at Chernobyl and at Fukushima is that the actual environment, so if we take humans out of the equation for the moment, the, the environment has ironically benefited from the Chernobyl accident. So we've studied lakes around the Chernobyl site, including the cooling reservoir at the site, and we find a thriving aquatic ecosystem. So we see healthy 
fish populations, we see healthy fish, we see uh, aquatic invertebrate populations. So the insects that are grubbing about in the contaminated sediments of these lakes, they're every bit as diverse and abundant as insect populations in other lakes in the area. Similarly, we've seen high populations of large mammals. And what we've seen after the accident is that the animals associated with human presence, things like rats, pigeons, sparrows, have declined in numbers because the people have been evacuated. And wild animals, uh, wild boar, roe deer, wolves, various species of eagle, have increased in numbers. And that's not because the radiation's helping the animals, but because the the human occupation was much worse for the animal population. So when people were there and doing farming, fishing, chopping down trees, all the things that people do when we inhabit an area, that was much worse for the natural environment than this than the relatively low level radiation that that, that exists in the long term after the accident. So, Jim, just to sum up what we've talked about, we've already seen a couple of disasters at nuclear power plants, one caused by natural disaster, another one caused by human error. And now in Ukraine, there's this threat of a meltdown caused by war. And these are the things that opponents of nuclear power as a solution to climate change might point to. But for people who support it, nuclear also holds a lot of promise. And we've heard some of the biggest voices on climate change, uh, people like Bill Gates, come out in favor of atomic energy. So having a non-weather dependent, completely green, reliable form of energy generation that can be cheap enough means that there will really have to be some nuclear in that equation. Greta Thunberg joined the protest against Germany's decision to phase out nuclear. If we have them already running, I feel that it's a mistake to close them down in okay. order to focus on coal. And I just wanted to talk about how countries are divided on their approach to nuclear. We've seen Japan do a complete 180 on its plans to move away from atomic power. Last year, France announced a plan to build 14 new reactors. And just last week, Canada announced that uh, new plan in Ontario. I, I mentioned this in the intro what makes nuclear appealing to governments as an energy source? So nuclear provides a baseload energy. So in, in the UK, well, up until recently, it provided about 20 to 25% of our baseload electricity. In France, that was about, and still is, about 70 to 80%. And nuclear is, is one of the few reliable non-carbon emitting or very low carbon emitting uh, energy generation technologies. And so what, what the struggle with transferring to a, an electricity system powered by renewables is that as you get a higher percentage of your electricity being generated by solar and wind, you need more and more backup in the form of batteries or pump storage where water's pump from one reservoir to another to store energy. So you need more energy storage, the more intermittent renewables you have in your grid. So nuclear is very useful for the electricity grid because it 24-7 
pretty much throughout the year. So the, the what we call the capacity factors, the amount that the the amount of time that the energy is being generated is about ninety percent. And very often the, this question is framed in: Should we go for nuclear or should we go for renewables? My view is that we need both, and we need to be building both as as quickly as possible. There are other countries that that are standing firm on moving away from nuclear. So Germany, for example, within three months of the meltdown in Japan announced that it was going to phase out nuclear power, uh, standing firm on that. Uh, Countries like Spain and Switzerland are also winding down. Why has there been so little consensus around this internationally? I mean, I think particularly in Germany, there's been an incredibly effective anti-nuclear movement. And Nuclear, you could say it was sort of on the brink of being closed down. And then when the Fukushima accident happened, that was kind of the last straw, really, for defenders of nuclear in Germany. And and it was promised. It took a long time. So it's just this year that nuclear has finally been phased out. But that was the promise made. I mean, ironically, what's happened when Germany's increased its renewables, but because the, the nuclear share of the electricity generation has gone down, it's now still burning coal. And so what, what's happened is that the Germany really had a choice. Was it coal or nuclear? Um, and they chose to shut down nuclear, but that's meant that they're still, and particularly in this energy crisis, they're still burning coal. And, and we know that does damage. There's been a study of the impacts of the phase-out of German nuclear power, and that study says that it's led to about a 1,000 more deaths a year from air pollution because coal plants pollute the air, and it's caused about 36 million extra tonnes of CO2 each year being emitted into the atmosphere. So we don't have any easy energy choices, and it's not a simple question, do we build solar panels or do we build nuclear? It's, it's do we build nuclear or do we keep using fossil fuels? Okay, Jim, thank you so much for explaining both sides of this this debate. I really appreciate it, and I feel a lot more clear in my mind about all of this. Thank you. Bye. All right, that's it for today. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.